0: I don't know if you are aware, but uh, in a former life, I was involved a lot in singing, in choirs and those sorts of things. Um, and so, of course, you get invited to do the occasional wedding, um, mostly as parts of choirs. And some of the songs that we got to sing were pretty amazing and pretty wonderful. Uh, one in particular that stands out to me is Set Me As A Seal. I just like read the lyrics. They're, just, they're from the Bible, based on the Bible verse, and uh, they go, Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm, for love is strongest as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown. It's a bold statement about the power of love. I
1: learned the other day that uh,
0: Emma Fuchs also used to sing at weddings. Uh, and apparently one couple actually asked her to sing The Beatles' yesterday. Now, I don't know if you know the lyrics, but let me just read them to you. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. <laughs> now, it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, no. oh I believe in yesterday. <laughs> suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. <laughs> it's a very different message, isn't it? Um, if I recall correctly, I gather Emma managed to talk them out of using that. But it, it, it's funny, and it's funny partly because sometimes that's what marriage is like. I mean, yes, marriage is supposed to be God's good gift, but experience tells us marriages are fragile. And what starts with great promises of loyalty can end in sadness, and and some of us know that first or at least second. So the question comes, why spend a Sunday on marriage and especially recognising that many of us aren't married or aren't married anymore? Are these verses even relevant for us? So at these sorts of moments, I, I need to remind myself that the Bible is God's good word for us, that it's true, and if it's true, then all of it is true, including the parts that I find hard and including the parts that don't initially seem relevant to me. And so, in my experience, if something I read in the Bible says something different to what I expect, um, it's difficult for me to accept it, or perhaps I just don't see its relevance. That's the moment my thinking most needs to change. Uh, The problem isn't in the Bible, it's in me. And so, I'm praying that's what happens this morning. Uh, We're going to start by looking at these verses in context, not just in context of Colossians, but in the context of the whole Bible. Remind ourselves what, what marriage is about. And then we'll, we'll listen to what God says to wives and what God says to things. How about I pray? Okay, we'll do that. Heavenly Father, do please help us this morning to see marriage, but to see in marriage something that teaches us about ourselves and our relationship to Jesus. We pray that it would be a great encouragement and that it equip us to love each other well. pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so marriage is the big deal in the Bible. There is one... First marriage that sort of kicks off the whole game, and then you have at the end of the Bible the last marriage that will ever be. And we're just going to quickly go there. So if you turn with me to Genesis two verse fifteen, uh, this is the the first marriage, the marriage in the Garden of Eden. It's the marriage of Adam and Eve. And as you go there, what you're going to notice is surprising, is that this first marriage was about teamwork. You actually think you've got to start at verse fifteen. Because verse 15 is when Adam is given work by God. He's put in the garden to serve it and work it. Now he does that within limits in verse 16. So Adam's responsible for how he works the garden. He is to look after God's world, God's way. But then in verse 18, we find something that is not good. And that's just... because up until now, time and again, God has made something, he's looked at it and said, it's good, it's good, it's good, and now something is not good. Now, at that point, it's pretty tempting to make a joke about God giving Adam a job and he manages to mess it up until he has to make Eve. I'm not going to go down that path. (laughs) The problem is actually, one lone man can't bring order to an entire world. He actually needs a team. And so Eve is the perfect answer. She's not just a co-worker. That that would be good enough. But together, they can have kids. That's why you have a man and a woman. That's the beauty of marriage. You can multiply the workforce. You can raise kids to then serve the world. So humanity has a job to do. Adam's been given the brief. But Eve is there to, to build the team. Now, things don't look that way now, and we need to work out what, how sin has affected marriage, but some quick observations right off the bat. Uh, notice that marriage was meant to be good. And not just for the people married, marriage is meant to be good for the world. It's actually part of caring for the world. Marriages are meant to be outward looking. And then also notice that Adam is responsible. So God tells Adam, implicitly, he tells Eve. There's an order, there's an accountability built into marriage, that first marriage relationship. And you really see that when things go wrong, don't you? So join with me, chapter 3, just the next page, probably. The sad thing is that Adam and Eve disobey God. They both disobey God. Sin comes. And the way they react is to to point the finger at each other. God asks Adam what happened, and so he just slides the blame to Eve. Eve's asked, and she slides the blame to the serpent. Everyone's blame shifting. And then as we read on, it turns out that marriage is not only one of the first things affected, but one of the worst affected things as things go on. Uh, Probably the best summary of the effect of sin on marriage is Genesis 3, verse 16, where God says this to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It can sound a bit strange throughout years. The word desire there isn't sexual desire in this part of the Bible. We, other times it's used. It's, it's used of the desire to rule, to be in charge. So you could translate, you will desire to rule your husband. But also notice, the husband is no longer leading his wife, working with her, he's dominating her, ruling over. It's a sad picture. Marriages that that aren't about working together, about bringing God's order to the world, they become a battle of sexes. Okay. That's the first marriage. So what about the last marriage? In Revelation, Revelation 19, if you're feeling like flipping your Bibles, um, this is the marriage to end all marriages. The great finale. In the book of Revelation, we see that See this marriage, and listen to how it's described. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of now, if you're not familiar, the lamb in this passage is Jesus. This is the wedding between Jesus and his people, the church. And the thing to realise is, this is the marriage that, that ends it all, that completes every other marriage. This is the marriage that other marriages point towards. They hint us towards, at least. This is the love story behind every love story, the relationship more intimate than any other relationship you could imagine. And that actually tells us something wonderful. It tells us that the history of this world isn't some directionless and random journey. It is a love story. A story of how Jesus the groom will win his bride. And and think about how the story ends. It ends with Jesus leading his people as we all work together to perfectly care for God's will. It's the completion of what was started in the garden. And I reckon that's why we need to hear about marriage today. This is a frame to think about it in. As we think about what marriage should look like, we're actually learning a lot about our relationship to Christ and what it means to live in his world and what we're looking forward to in heaven. So, getting that context, let's go back to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Uh, we've been hearing about in Colossians 3 that we have new identity in Christ. We're putting off the old person. We're putting on this new person that Christ has made for us. What does that look like in marriage? Well, come to verse 18. God says, Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the first thing to notice here is actually something we probably take for granted. Uh, but it's actually really surprising but in Paul's day that these instructions are addressed to the wife. If you go to there's all sorts of family codes and instructions for families at the time, and they're they're basically written to the husband as of how to run his household. So Aristotle speaks to the wife to the husband about the perfect wife being submissive. That's not how this is written. This is not something the husbands can demand of their wives, it is a command to the wives. Still, I have to pause and say, I get it, like this is uncomfortable. Because I also grew up in post-feminist, post-modern Australia. I just know this sounds weird. So, let's slow down. Let's think about what is it not saying. This is not saying that women are less than their husbands. So even today, people run this argument. Uh, most recently, I can I, I find, was a, a Polish politician, Janusz Korwin-Mikke, maybe? I don't know how to pronounce Polish. Um, but he actually was... Daring enough to say, of course women must earn less than men because they are weaker, they are smaller, they are less intelligent. They must earn less, that's all. I mean, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. And it's been repeated down in history. The thing is, it's wrong. And it's not wrong because it's politically incorrect. It's not wrong because it's unpopular now. It's wrong because this is not the gospel. I mean, the argument might work... If our value as people came from the things we are able to do, although even then I'd have to question that I've met all that many women who are weaker and less intelligent than men. But this argument is wrong because God decides our value. That's where our true value comes from. And he made women and men equally noble, equally important, because he made us both in his image. We are equally in God's image. And what's more, in this passage in Colossians 3, we're both equally saved. That's clearly how Paul thinks, because look at verse 11. We have this new identity in Christ, and being male or female is irrelevant. Just like he dismisses slave versus master, or Greek versus Roman, those categories aren't the things that make a difference. It's being in Christ. That is the category that matters. That is where my identity and my value come from. So what that means is, what he's asking of the women does not make them less. To choose to submit does not reduce your value. And we know that not another way is because in the New Testament, every Christian at some point is asked to submit. So in some relationship, somewhere. Every Christian is told to submit, and in fact, Jesus submitted. The ultimate image of God, submitted. The son submitted to the father. See, submission isn't subhuman. Submission makes you like Jesus. So if you don't like the idea of giving up what you want for the sake of others, you're actually in the wrong religious religious community. This is not the faith for you. Because at the heart of Christianity is what Jesus does, and Jesus submits. That doesn't make him less. Okay, so that's one thing it's not saying. Another thing that verse 18 is not saying, it's not dictating a stereotype. It's not saying that women should be quiet, demure, dormant. There's plenty of strong women in history who chose to submit because they trusted this verse. So, um, I don't know if you know this lady, anyone here recognise that face? Her name is Margaret Oll. And uh, Margaret was the daughter of Charles Old, the first Presbyterian minister in Brisbane. He raised his daughter to use her gifts for the good of humanity, and she did. Uh, Margaret founded the Queensland Women's Electoral League. She fought for the right of women to vote. She fought for women to receive their husband's estate when their husband died, because that wasn't the case until recently. She fought for the age of consent to rise from 14 to 17 to protect women. I don't know if you know Edith Longman, but you've probably heard of the Longman electorate. Um, that's named after Edith Longman, who was the first woman to be elected in the Queensland Parliament. You'll never guess who was her, the chair of her election campaign. It was Margaret Ogg. Oh. Margaret Og oh was no doormat. And yet you read what Margaret said and wrote, and uh, she's actually very conservative. She's thoroughly convinced. Uh, about the Bible and what it means to be a Christian is found there. But she doesn't, she just defies these stereotypes. So the Australian University, National University website has a biography. It lists her achievements, it lists all these things she's done, and then it says, Frail in appearance, a firm believer in Victorian moral virtues, unashamedly old-fashioned, always dressing for dinner in silk and pearls, she was a poet and the place. See, don't try and stereotype Margaret off. Oh, not one way, not the other. She was simply a woman who fought for women to be treated as women. Not as subhuman, and not as men, as women. So in that case, what is God saying here? Well, submission isn't about inferiority, it's not about being doormats. God is saying that between two equal persons husband and wife there are different roles, different responsibilities the husband is responsible for his family and the wife needs to let him take responsibility allow him to care for her and for the family to let him lead and that's what we see Jesus do in his submission he kept trusting his father to care for him rather than fighting for himself even to the point of going to the cross. No wonder submission is fitting in the Lord. It is a noble thing to do for every Christian. Okay. That then takes us to verse 19. And it's really, I've got to emphasise, it's when these two verses come together that they make the most sense. And I recognise, when if you're in a situation where that's not happening, it takes godly wisdom. It probably takes some sitting down with others to reflect on how to respond in the situation. But verse 19 tells the husband two things that really make it sensible for the wife to submit. You know, it makes sense of submission. Positively, they need to love their wives and negatively, they mustn't be harsh with them. So again, let's just start by saying what it's not saying. Now, clearly, marriage is not about the husband. Marriage is not about meeting the needs or the desires or the, the fantasies of the man. Leading the family is not getting what you want. Again, it's also not about stereotypes. There's not this stereotyping you put, or put forward of what a man is. And I reckon often when we think of it, guys, we tend to get it wrong. Because there's this, this heroic streak in all of us and we go... Oh, yeah, husbands, love your wives. And especially you know, Ephesians 5, that we read before, and laying down your life for your wife. And, and we go, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Anytime she's in mortal danger, I'll put my life on the line. Oh, honey, uh, the kids are a bit noisy. You might just go and take care of them. We miss the point. Uh, love is constant, love never fails. Uh, love is always working for the good of the other person. That sort of love is there when the kids need attention. It's there when the clothes need washing and the dishes need stacking. It is constant in the relationship. It is looking for what is best for my wife now. It's really interesting. Um, Graham and Beth are our new mission partners. Um, you've had a chance to hear about them. Uh, they're working in Central Asia. They're great friends of Jocelyn and I. And they talk about a Russian Baptist church in Central Asia that was highly conservative. Okay. And Graham would visited him one day and he asked the, the, the elders of the church, what would you do if there was a married couple and the husband declared that they were about to move back to Russia? Hadn't consulted his wife, he just simply told her that's what we're doing. And they, they looked shocked. He said, oh, clearly this man does not understand the law of love. He, he does not understand it. He must lay down his life for his wife and upset so Graham actually asked them, well, what would you do as the leadership of the church if that was the case? And they said, oh, well, you probably have to tell him not to take communion until he repented, learned to love his wife quite properly. It's really telling, isn't it? That the, the extent to which they're willing to go, because they want to see that men love their wives, I'm not sure that even in egalitarian Australia they're quite that good at looking after those situations. Well, what the thing to notice is that they were simply applying these words. They had just simply been reading their Bible and realised what it means for a husband to love his wife. The instructions are, don't be harsh. And okay, that immediately just counts out a whole lot of abuse that has too long been justified by these sorts of verses. It is just not on. unacceptable. And instead, husbands are to love their wives. Love like Christ. Give up what you want. Look for what she needs. What will make her flourish? I reckon that's the, the great measure of how am I going as a husband? Is my wife flourishing? What can I do to see that happen? When you read it that way, you actually realize that both husbands and wives are, are being called to give up their rights. It's actually very different to a lot of the marriage advice we get these days where the best way to have a marriage is to to work out what I need Mm -hmm. and assert that in the relationship. It's actually calling for a different dynamic of seeking what is best for the other and pursuing that and learning to trust each other. Now, Janet, do you mind ducking up and getting Joss? Um, What we're going to do is have a bit of an interview because I think it's worth actually just asking, asking what it looks like. Um, in relationship, so I'd like Joss to put that into words and her observations in me, rather than um, than, than just stand here and assert on both sides of the coin. Um, but before we do that, how about I just run through a few of the things that are happening in our church family? Um,